From 2 Samuel chapter 5, hear the word of God. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for, over 33, for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can warn you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inwards. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there, Shammua, Shabab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Tephiah, Elshamah, Elihada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, so David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So the, that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle round behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him and struck, him down, struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Lord, bless now these words of mine, that they may not be my words, but that they may be your words. And I pray, O oh God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pure and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock, our fortress, our redeemer. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.
Well, we did a thing that you normally do right at the beginning of the summer. We just cleaned out our garage. And it has been a long time coming. As you know, garage life and garage stuff can build up like sedimentary layers in the geological timeline. Oh, that's from that period. Oh, that's from that period. Oh, yes, that's from winter 2010. Whatever, you know, just builds up. And it's been a long time coming. I mean, we moved here two years ago, a little over two years ago. That garage, when we first moved in, it was full. Now we have a big open space, and the kids are up there playing the other day, and they were running around the little uh, tricycle and the tricycle um, uh, motor thing that, that Jack has. In our garage, there was space. There was space. But it took a while. It didn't happen right away. It was a process. And there was a final push. We decided to take Gracie out to uh, celebrate her being one of two students of the year for eighth grade class. Uh, yeah, little, little plug there. All the children here are God's children, but I am very proud of our daughter for that. Um, so we took her out and then we said, hey, let's get the garage done you know, right after. Good way to work off a meal at the Cheesecake Factory, right? So Lord knows I need it. So anyway, so we did that and we pushed. And I was feeling fatigued on the way home, like, oh, I don't know, this might be a little too much for me to do this tonight. Get the, so we wanted to get the garage because I rented a little U-Haul truck. You know how you need them to get all the stuff. So we did that Friday afternoon and then we backed it up to the driveway. We were ready to go. We were ready to, ready to get that process going after we got back from the Cheesecake Factory. And with my wife's help, we did it. Praise be to God. It's a miracle. Finally. Well, you could say the same thing about King David here. Finally, right? Finally, this guy is anointed king by his own peeps, his own peoples. There's a variety of factors in David's becoming king, including some political shenanigans and even some nasty violence. We talked about that last week. The Old Testament is a, is a rough and tumble tale, and it's, tr it's not just a tale, I mean, it's true, but you believe these things happen, these are real places, because we're gonna, I'm gonna tell you about that in a minute, but, but it can be hard to read. And we talked about that last week, and we say God allows certain things, God permits certain things, and God intends certain things, and there's nothing ever that God permits that gets in the way of what he intends. It's a huge part of the Old Testament story, and we talked about promise and threat to promise, and God's promise was to bring about an ultimate liberator through the line of King David who would be set up as a major figure, like Moses and Abraham in the life of Israel. And of course, that is ultimately the person of Jesus Christ. One scholar puts it this way, the biblical ex explanation for David's rise to power identifies many factors. David is king of all Israel because historically, politically, Abner has paved the way for the northern tribes to support him and Ishbosheth was an ineffectual leader. 
Sociologically, the northern tribes enter into covenants agreeing to the terms of David's kingship. Psychologically, David is a powerful figure who commands the loyalty of his people. But beyond these important factors, there is the theology of the matter. Theologically, not just historically, not just sociologically, not just politically, not just psychologically, but ultimately, theologically, God has chosen this guy. In the biblical worldview, this is the core, the red-hot core of it all. The rest are secondary, tertiary, quadruciary, whatever that fourth would be, uh, elements of this. Verse three, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. Scholars point out this probably meant that he had rules and rights and obligations of both sides. It was kind of an agreement now. So now we're there. We got a king. We got an agreement. They anointed king over Israel. Israel, scholars say, was one of the few nations that anointed, that used oil to anoint its kings in the ancient world. The practice appears to have been used in the ancient Near East in business and legal contexts for contractual or covenantal purposes. So they're using something from their culture and elevating it. You could say they're almost kind of converting an idea to a higher meaning, right? Interesting. So David is anointed and sets up a covenant relationship with all the tribes of Israel. Ah, sigh, we're there. Garage is clean, we're set, right? Not quite, not quite. If you notice, there is a recurring theme in these last few sermons, and it's this. Regime change takes time. You might say that's kind of the whole theme of the whole Bible, is regime change. Coming into a life under God, with God, in God, and it takes humanity time, a lot of time. David was anointed by the prophet Samuel as king. Then he had to deal with the previous guys, guys who don't want to give up power, even though that guy Saul was dead, his guys didn't want to give it up. Then once they finally give it up, David is anointed, David is anointed by his countrymen. There is still more here, as we read, that David has to deal with. It is the Jebusites. Oh, those Jebusites. They took over Jerusalem around 1850 BC. They built a wall around it and they called it Jebus. The Jebusites had been around since Genesis 10 and the tribe of Judah did not expel them when they conquered the land under Joshua's leadership. God said, I'm gonna give you this land. You gotta drive out the locals. That was always God's intent to set up a homeland for his people so that then the good news could go out for all peoples from his people in that land. But so they didn't lose their way and get tempted, they had to drive out the locals. They did that to some extent, but to some other extent, they didn't. And the Jebusites would not be dislodged by the, uh, by the Israelites. Judah could not dislodge them, Joshua 15 tells us. They're tough. These Jebusites are tough. Garages are tough. It will get cluttered again. I know it will. 
it's coming. You know, it's no matter how clean we make it, it's gonna get, it's gonna get messy again. The Jebusites were tough. Not only are they tough, they have a fort. And they got an attitude. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind, the lame can ward you off. Nah, 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 boo, boo. And they thought it too. It's not just their exterior. The text says in their interiority, David cannot get in here. So David and his men and his men go in. We know from elsewhere in scripture that David's general Joab led the attack and he may have done so by getting into the city through its water system. It's a water shaft described in verse eight. And these are actual places. I mentioned that, I mentioned that a minute ago. This is not a wish dream or a fantasy. This is historical The remains of this water shaft were discovered in 1867 by Charles Warren, who was an officer in the British Royal Engineers and an archeologist of the Holy Land. And there is an actual shaft that he discovered which has been named Warren Shaft. Discover an archeological find, you get it named after you. They have excavated these massive towers too dating them to the Middle Bronze Age, which uh, the Jebusites lived in the upper end of the Middle Bronze Age, around 1850 BC. Middle Bronze Age was 3300 to 1200 BC. So point is, this is real stuff. These are real battles, real people. The Jebusites were really tough and they had real attitude. Verse seven though, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion. He got it. Once again, oh, those last few boxes pushed through, right? Let's get them out of the garage. David, once again, clears the city so he can get in there. And then he lives there and he builds it up. But here's the thing. Here's the theme. For all of this strategy and effort, water shafts and such. Our text makes clear that the true origin of David's success is, as we said earlier, a theological matter. He became more and more powerful, the text says, because he had bright generals and they figured out how to get the water shaft, no. Because he was charismatic and was productive as a leader, no. Because the Lord Almighty was with him. Yes. Verse 10. And then just one verse later, after David gets help from another king to build Jerusalem more, we're reminded once again, he gets this incredible donation from uh, a foreign king of help to build his palace. Sort of a, Uh, uh, gives you a sense of the godness of God over the whole world, right? Showing up that a foreign king is helping God's king build his palace. Well, verse 12, then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over all Israel and had exalted his kingdom. This is the big story. We're talking about the life of David and there's something to admire and celebrate about King David 
But make no mistake, David isn't the hero here. God is the hero in the Old Testament and in the whole Bible. Moving with God towards God's new thing will be tough and there will be resistance from outside us and from inside us, but God is with us. God's faithfulness sees us through. This is a theme that plays out over and over again in the Old Testament. You may recognize this from the last few weeks as a salient, clear, recurring theme in the life of King David, woven in like a tapestry through a quilt. Yeah. When themes are repeated in the Bible, it's because God really wants us to get it. God makes the same point again right around the corner from the experience David had with the Jebusites, we get the Philistines. If the Jebusites were full of of defensive swagger, then the Philistines are equal to them in offensive swagger. We're told that the Philistines go up in full force to search for David And then they come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, probably two and a half miles west of Jerusalem, which uh, the, the Philistines came from the west. They were based along the coast. Once again, David's gotta be going, really? I just dealt with the Jebusites. I had Saul, I had Abner, I had all this stuff. Now I got the Philistines. But notice, David doesn't meet their swagger with his own swagger. Rather, what does David do? The text is clear. David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? Notice, David doesn't just first ask for guidance about how he should go about this. If God, as if God is some strategic assistance or assistant or, or God is some guidance counselor. God, God is no mere cosmic help desk to consult about our plans. God is God. It's not that God gives David the work to do that it's not, like, it's not like God gives David the work to do that David has to do, but that God is, grant, God is granting David to participate in his work. We are always working God's work. Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your salvation for it is God at work in you. So we have work to do within God's bigger work. It's not that we're passive or have no agency or we're inert or we're sitting here just snoozing on the couch. We work, but it's within God's work. Jesus says, abide in me, apart from me, you can do nothing. Zip, zilch, zippy the donut. Our salvation is totally God's work and we're granted the grace to have a role in that. But it's a role of participation in God's achievement. It's not achieving something for ourselves that God guides us to. There is nothing in me that can be activated to save myself. It's gotta be God, 100% total. David knows that. There is tremendous theological weight 
in that verse 19. Listen to it again. This is from a king. He asked the king, will you deliver them into my hands? It's not, okay, God, you take the back door and I'll go through the window, right? He's not talking about a division of labor. God takes 50% and I take 50%. No, this is a divine accomplishment in which David participates. Will you deliver them into my hands? Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. You see that, how those texts work together. We don't live and die in our strategy. We live and die in our theology. It's a constant battle to remember that. We move in him. We move on his cues toward the gifts he gives. David gets this. It's been a long road, so he really gets this. He's been attacked, chased, seven to 10 years in the wilderness desert. Now he's here as a king, and he's still not so caught up in his kingly status that he forgets who the real king is. He's not so caught up in his sense of accomplishment that he loses who the real accomplisher is. And if this isn't enough, we have the Jebusites. Then we had the Philistines hitting him once. He repels them. Verse 22, we get the Philistines hitting him again. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the Valley of Rephaim. You get the sense, if you were listening to this, telling stories around a campfire, and you were listening for recurring themes, right? Because this is an oral tradition in the Hebrew world, and you were telling these stories, you would be going, oh, not again. You'd be hearing this theme of the relentlessness, the cycle of repetitive resistance and rejection to change and God's transforming work. We seem to do this. We resist and resent and fight God's tide. And the world around us does. We do that inside ourselves and we do that in the world around us. This is a repeated theme in David. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the Valley of Rephaim. Once more, there will be boxes on the floor of our, my new clean garage, guaranteed. So rather than daddy getting mad at the kids playing and leaving a mess, daddy will inquire of the Lord. <laughs> I will inquire of the Lord, Lord, what do you have to teach me from this? And he does have things to teach me from this, guarantee it. So David inquired of the Lord and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gebeon to Gezer. Trees are awesome. Do you love trees? I love trees. We got some big old trees right across the way here, and I can see them outside my window, and they'll sway in the breeze. We got some tall trees in the Pac Northwest. Ooh, I love it. Sometimes it looks like they're stretching up for worship. Now, of course, the text doesn't orient us to the trees themselves. It's the sound of the trees, the sound that God makes in the trees. But the thing about trees is they force us to look up. 
And in David's case, he had to both look up to the sea where the poplar trees were, and he had also to listen. That's theology. Starting with God, imagination, creativity, and then putting that into strategy, whatever that may look like. Sometimes we may get a little bit of God-driven, theologically-driven strategy a little bit at a time. Sometimes when we get a bigger picture, it'll be adjusted. He's a lamp unto our feet, right? To just sometimes just see your feet. But the point is, trees remind us to look up. They remind us to be theological. Thinking theologically, in essence, means that reality is never merely limited to the hardships in front of us. Thinking theologically means that reality is never limited to the hardships in front of us or the struggle inside of us. Thinking theologically means reality is bigger than that. Reality is held in the hands of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we look up and we listen up and we remember the triune God of grace is near and we move in faith, not in fear. Fear and anxiety, Fear and anxiety constantly rival for our attention, distract us from the God who is over us, smother our spiritual freedom, stifle our God-given creativity, shut down the body of Christ so that we can't even move. Oh, my garage is so full, I don't even want to start. But with our minds and hearts saturated by Scripture, we live from that bigger reality of God in the trees. We look up, we listen, and we live free. And the same God who is with David on his mission also makes that promise to us in Jesus Christ, who says, remember, I am with you always. May it be so for you and for me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord. Amen.